Join me again in your copy of God's Word in the letter of James, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 is where we'll be uh, this morning. Today as we uh, begin to conclude the letter of James and our series in James, we come to a passage of Scripture where we see again what faith does, and this week seeing that faith waits with perseverance. Faith waits with perseverance. Perhaps you've picked up, as we've been going through the letter of James, a sense of urgency in James's tone, in his voice, and what he's communicating to the churches to whom he is writing. We certainly saw that tone of urgency over the last several weeks, um, uh, beginning in chapter uh, 4 and going through the first part of chapter 5, as James is very strongly speaking against, an, uh, against sin in the church and calling those sinners to repentance. This sense of urgency in James's voice, in his tone in this letter, comes mostly, primarily, from the fact that James, along with the rest of the church, were in their day eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Now we know somewhere in the, but the mid-30s or so A.D., Jesus died on a cross for sins, that three days later he was raised from the dead, and then a period of time after appearing to several of the disciples and other people, he ascended again to heaven with the promise that he would return. In the early days of the Christian church, the believers expected Jesus to come back any minute. And certainly James, the half-brother of Jesus, had that same sort of anticipation. Still now we wait about 2,000 years later for Christ's return, knowing that he'll come in his perfect timing uh, and, and when uh, it is the right time for him to come. But still we wait. James, with this sense of urgency, knowing that Christ could return any moment, uh, writes to the various churches scattered around the Roman Empire to encourage them in these verses in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, that Christians of genuine faith, genuine faith in Jesus, wait with peaceful, patient integrity until Christ returns. It's important that we wait the right way for Christ to come back. We who know Christ are to be productive as we wait for him. We're also to be patient, to be peaceful, and to be full of integrity until Christ returns. I would hope that on studying this passage of Scripture this morning, that we would be led to put our faith, to continue to practice genuine faith, in persevering in godly, productive ways, as we also continue to wait for Christ's return. Now, when I was a young boy growing up, one of my childhood heroes was, and probably many of yours as well, uh, the inimitable Hulk Hogan, who, professional wrestler, if you don't know who he is, um, man, get to know him. Hulk Hogan, who anytime he had something important to say, always used very frequently the word brother. Let me tell you, brother, when we get to WrestleMania 30, brother, right? He just, he's always calling people, brother, that's all I'm going to do. That's all you get out of me today. Always saying, brother, brother, brother. And uh, today, James sounds a little bit like Hulk Hogan as he says, brother, 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 several times in this passage. And the reason he says it is because it's important. He's calling the attention of the church to what he is saying. So would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, as we see how faith waits with perseverance. James, a half-brother of Jesus, carried along by the Holy Spirit, continues. He says, 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any, uh, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. May God bless us as we study his word. You may be seated. I heard some of you giggling every time we read Brothers in James, and uh, so now you're going to have Hulk Hogan's voice in your head every time you read James from now on, I'm sure. But that address, brothers, be patient, brothers, do not grumble against one another, brothers, it is ex- as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, above all brothers, that's, that's not just an address to the men of the church. It's a collective way of speaking to everyone. We could just as easily say, and perhaps some of your translations uh, uh, translate it this way, brothers and sisters. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. And so as we work through the four different things, the four different exhortations that James gives to the church, we'll look at them through the, the lens of applying to the whole of the church, both brothers and sisters. First, we see this in verses 7 and 8. James calling the church, brothers and sisters, be patient. Be patient. As James begins to close his letter, he calls the church first to patience. Notice in verse 7, he says, therefore. Be patient, therefore, brothers. This word, therefore, always ought to ask us to, cause us to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore, And therefore is always calling our attention back to something that preceded where we are in the text. And so this therefore calls us back to uh, the the first part of chapter 5 in which James was rebuking and condemning the wicked rich who were oppressing the poor. In light of the judgment that is coming upon those oppressive wealthy people, those in the church should practice patience. Those who are waiting for the Lord's return should be patient. Specifically, they're to wait patiently for Christ's return. In fact, all of the exhortations that are here in these verses that we consider today are in light of James's assumption that Christ would return any day. Now, here's a slight difficulty for us when we read passages like this. We totally affirm the truthfulness of every word of Scripture. Whether those words be from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels or the pen of Paul in his letters from the heart of James or from uh, John the Apostle. Yet James expected Jesus to return any moment in his day. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and to my knowledge, Christ has not yet returned to call the church to himself. Are we to conclude that somehow uh, Jesus, in predicting his return, and James and Paul, in expecting Christ's return, were all wrong because it has not happened 2,000 years later? Certainly not. For Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 36, that the date of his return, the timing of his return was unknown by him before he ascended again to the Father. And so it is not wrong for James to call the believers to be patient and still expectant of Christ's return, to be patient with a sense of urgency, knowing that Christ's return was imminent. 
Their patience, though, the patience that James is calling the church to exhibit, is not to be anxious nor slothful. We're not supposed to be wringing our our hands and worry about Christ's return. Neither are we to sit on our hands and do nothing until he returns. Rather, like farmers, they are to be about the work that must take place even while they wait upon the rains to water their crops. Farmers were dependent upon the rains in James's day. Now, with modern technology and irrigation, we're not totally dependent upon rain to water our crops today, but 2,000 years ago they were. But that did not mean that if it was not raining, that the farmers were not working. And neither did it mean that if it did not rain, that the farmers became anxious about it. So it is that uh, we as Christians wait for Christ's return, even today, 2,000 years removed from the announcement that he would return one day. As we wait for him, we do not get lazy, and we do not neglect the call to do what Christ has called us to do in the meantime, to make disciples of Jesus as he has commanded. And neither do we freak out and begin worrying that Jesus has tarried, that he has lingered in his coming, that he has not come as quickly as we would like. So we then, like those to whom James is writing, should wait with patience. And as we wait, let us strengthen our faith. As we wait with patience, let us strengthen our faith. Read what James says in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. When James says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, he is instructing the church to strengthen their faith. He's saying, drill down in what you believe. Weigh anchor into the faith that you have professed. Affix your hope to the sure footing that you have in Jesus. This much is true. Church, we wait for Christ best when we wait with certain faith. Now, this has been a constant theme of James's letter, focusing on what faith does. That we are to be hearers of the uh, doers of the word, and, and not hearers only. That we are to have a faith that works, a faith that produces the kind of things in our lives that show that Christ has really changed our hearts. And one of the things that faith does is that it waits patiently with strong faith. Right? It waits patiently, established in what we have come to believe. About Jesus. Brothers and sisters, be patient. Second, brothers and sisters, be peaceable. Verse 9, James writes, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. While waiting for Christ to return and enduring hardship and persecution and oppression that comes with faith in Jesus, it is not uncommon for Christians to get impatient with one another. While waiting patiently for Christ, We have a tendency to get impatient with one another. And knowing that long periods of waiting often test the mettle of our composure, James instructs the church to keep from grumbling against one another. James knows what what is maybe the, the most easy default position among the church, to begin grumbling as they wait for Christ when he doesn't come as quickly as they had expected. This is a clear command against complaining against other Christians and even making judgments against one another. Already in James chapter 4, verse 12, we saw that it is wrong to judge or to play the role of God in condemning other people. Here, James is warning the church again not to do that, not to play the role of God in condemning, in in placing uh, uh, words of eternal judgment upon their other brothers and sisters in the church as they wait for Christ's return. 
As they wait for perfect judgment from Jesus, they are to withhold judging others, grumbling against one another. Instead, they remain patient with each other and peaceable. So, dear friends, as we wait for Christ, let us be those who make peace with one another. Let us be those who do not grumble against each other, who do not grow impatient with one another as we wait for Christ's return, but those who are constantly making peace among the brothers and sisters of Christ. Now at home, when our girls get impatient with each other, they sometimes play the role of mom or dad in chastising one another. It is not uncommon for me to hear from down the hall or whatever, one of the girls saying to another of the girls, don't you know you're not supposed to do that? And if you do that again, you're going to have to have such and such consequences, right? Being mom, being dad to their other sisters. And it's not always the oldest to the youngest. Sometimes it flows upstream. Now, when I hear my daughters giving instruction to each other as though they are mom or dad, as though they have the authority to set the rules of the house, you can imagine that that does not meet my ears too well. That does not make me a very happy father to hear my daughters bossing each other around. And so it does not take very long for me to get from wherever I am hearing that to the door of the room where those conversations are having, to knock on the door, open it up, and to say something like, what did you just say? Who do you think you are? Who told you you get to make the rules? This is my house. I'm the dad. And if there's a problem, you come tell me and I will deal with it. But it is not for you to be mom or dad to punish each other. Oh, we laugh and it's funny. But dear friends, how often do we do that within the church as we wait for Christ's return? How often do we assume Christ's authority in condemning our brothers and sisters for what is going on in their life. Now, I'm not here talking about uh, 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 discerning uh, obvious sin in a brother or sister's life. We are to do that. When, when a brother or sister, when a Christian is walking in unrepentant sin in their life, some, doing something without remorse that God has clearly said not to do, it is our responsibility to lovingly go to that individual, say, brother, sister, I see this sin in your life, and it's not consistent with what you profess about faith in Jesus. We need to work on this. You need to repent, and I'm here to help you. We must do that as Christians, but we are not to say, You are, brother, sister, you call yourself a Christian, you're doing this thing, you're going to hell for that, don't you know? That is not our authority to do. It is not within our authority to stand at the door and condemn or to say, pronounce salvation over the lives of other people. That is God's role alone. When Christ returns, be it in the next five minutes or 500 years from now, surely we do not want to be caught judging our brothers and sisters as though we were Christ speaking words of condemnation to fellow Christians as Christ is about to open the door and say, here I am, who do you think you are? This is not your house, you don't make the rules. Rather, let us not, as we wait for the Lord, let us not be those who are speaking words of condemnation, judging one another, but instead let us be those who are making peace with each other, seeking to bring one another in a closer walk with Jesus as we wait for his coming. Brothers and sisters, be peaceable. And as we wait for the Lord's return, brothers and sisters, persevere in suffering. James says in verses 10 and 11, as an example of suffering and patience. 
Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Patience does not just mean waiting nicely. It often means enduring hardship with perseverance. This was most certainly the case of the early church. Just a few short years after Christ resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven, the church was already being persecuted and scattered around the world by that persecution. James here speaks to their being oppressed by the wealthy in chapter 2, and, uh, and, and uh, Peter speaks about it in 1 Peter, uh, about the kind of hardships that Christians could expect to endure because of their faith in Jesus. Enduring suffering as a Christian is normative. It's normal. We should not be surprised or taken aback when the world hates us or despises us or mocks us for our faith. When this happens... Rather than being anxious or worried or scared, the church is to persevere when we suffer for our faith. And we have a model for this kind of suffering. James gives us, for example, the Old Testament prophets. Consider, as an example of suffering and patience, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The tradition holds that many of the prophets of the Old Testament were murdered at the hands of wicked kings of Israel in their day. Some were killed by Gentile kings, but most of them died at the hands of their own people. James encourages the church to look also at Job, who had everything taken from him and yet did not curse God. He did not waver in his faith. Instead, all of these, Job especially, persevered in their faith. All of these prophets plus Job, even though they were suffering. We might could say they persevered in their faith, not even though they were suffering, but because they were suffering. And for their perseverance, the prophets were revered by the Jews and by Christians alike. We look upon those people who persevered even in the midst of suffering, who did not waver from their faith, and we say, that is an awesome example. And yet all too often we're too quick to, uh, to say, but that's not my situation, but I'm not like that person. James says, dear friends, be like those that you consider blessed. When you're persecuted, when you're oppressed, when you're mocked for your faith, emulate the faith of the prophets who persevered in suffering. Emulate the patience of Job as he waited for God to answer his prayer. Emulate the persistent trust in God that is seen by all of those who have gone before and died in faith. As James writes this, we return in our minds and in our Bibles, too, to the words of his brother Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When this happens, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, endure suffering with perseverance. As we wait for Christ's return, let us endure. Let us persevere. Let us press on, looking forward to the purpose and the compassion of God. James says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
This is precisely how James instructs the church to wait. To wait looking forward to the purpose and compassion of God. Job was steadfast because he knew of the compassion of the Lord. Paul could be content in prison for his faith because he knew the power and hope of Jesus Christ. And dear friend, you can endure oppression oppression and persecution and mocking with grace until Christ returns because the same God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, the same God who answered Job in his distress, the same God who made Paul to be content is the God who, as Exodus 34, 6 says, is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast, in faithful love and faithfulness. This is the same God who works all things together for His glory and for the good of those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Are you suffering for your faith? Are you mocked for your faith? Then take joy in knowing you're not the first to have gone through this. Take joy in knowing that those who endure persecution for righteousness' sake will receive the kingdom of heaven as their inheritance. Take hope in that. Be, uh, be joyful in that. Follow, emulate the pattern of the prophets and of the apostles who have gone before us, who have suffered faithfully even in persecution. Finally and above all, brothers and sisters, as we wait for Christ to return, keep your word. Keep your word. James says in verse 12, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so you may not fall under condemnation. And all this talk of patience and peace and perseverance while we're waiting for Christ to return, verse 12 may seem a little bit out of place to us. This call not to take oaths or to swear by anything is, by James, a call to live with unwavering integrity of speech and action. Of course, this fits well within the context of James's letter and the overall theme of being doers of the word and not hearers only, of having a life of total integrity. The life of the Christian is a life of intellectual and behavioral consistency. So also, the life of the Christian is to be a life of verbal integrity. Our commitments should mean something. James, again, like Jesus in Matthew 5, 34 to 37, says to simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. There was a habit among some Jews in James' day of swearing by the temple, of taking an oath by Jerusalem, I swear by the city, or, or even I swear by the throne of the king. All of these oaths, uh, 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 taking an oath by the temple or by the city or by the throne of the king, were binding oaths and had to be kept. They had to be fulfilled by the one who was, uh, who, who was so swearing. Similarly, they could swear by less holy things like the sun or the moon or, uh, or other such parts of creation. And these oaths would not be as binding as the oaths uh, uh, by the temple, by the city, or by the throne of the king. But in any case, it seems that the oath-taking was sort of out of hand by Jesus' own day, and certainly by James's day as well. People were making oaths all the time, right? like, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you back that, those five talents. I swear by the temple I'll do it, right? And people were swearing by whatever all the time, it's just to the point that it was flippant. It was meaningless. It was superficial. People's promises meant nothing, and they were making big promises, binding oaths that they could not keep. Rather, because God is a true and faithful God, 
who always speaks truthfully, uh, God who acts with total integrity, God who always keeps his promises. Because we follow this God, we as his people ought also to do the same. We ought to always speak truthfully, to act with integrity, to keep our promises. Recently, I promised my daughter Ellie that I would do something small for her. I can't remember what it was. And I, I teased her that I wasn't going to do it. And she had this look of shock on her face. She's, making, she's make, giving me the stink eye right now. Like, I can't believe it. And she was kind of surprised by my teasing. Right? Oh, I'm not going to do that, honey. She's like, what? What do you mean you're not going to do that? She was surprised by that. And I said, honey, listen, I'm just kidding, sweetie. I'm, I'm going to do what I said. I promised I'm going to do it. I told her, I said, I wouldn't be much of a man if I didn't keep my word, would I? She very quickly turned that into and was telling everyone in the house within a matter of minutes, a man isn't a man unless he keeps his word, don't you know? (laughs) But you know she's right. But that adage isn't just for men, right? Men are not just, godly men are not just those who keep their word. This is a word that's also for Christians, Christians aren't truly Christians unless we keep our word. Christians aren't rightly followers of the one true God unless we ourselves speak in truth. We as followers of Jesus don't need to swear by God's name or even by our own lives because our actions are meant to speak for themselves. Our integrity is to be countercultural in its simplicity and its reliability. That when we say, yes, I will do this, no, I cannot, that those that we are saying yes or no to know that they're going to get exactly the commitment that we have, to, uh, that, that we have made to them. Brothers and sisters, keep your word as you wait for Jesus, says James. And so as we continue now, even 2,000 years later, waiting for Christ's return, let us wait as Christians with total integrity. For those who lived in the first few decades after Christ's ascension to heaven, it may have been easy to intentionally overpromise or overcommit to others. Certainly they may have thought, Christ is going to return any moment, and I won't have to fulfill my obligation, so it doesn't matter what sort of oath, binding or not, that I give. As soon as he comes back, I won't have to fulfill my obligation. But if that were the case and and Christ had returned with this binding oath that they had not fulfilled, with their obligations left unmet, their binding oaths now in disarray, the reputation of the Christian who made this oath but did not fulfill it, and the reputation of Christ himself whom they claimed to follow would have been far more than merely tarnished in the early centuries. Rather, waiting with integrity for the earliest Christians meant in part not over-promising and not over-committing, but instead simply saying, yes, I can do this, or no, I cannot, and living by your word. If the other party that the Christian was trying to enter into an agreement with, yes, I'll do this, no, I cannot, if the other party wanted an oath to seal the deal, like, I appreciate you saying that you will do that, but what I really need you to do is swear by the temple that you do it so I know you're really serious, well, then it simply was not an arrangement that the Christian could enter into. Because it's an arrangement that the Christian may not know for certain they could fulfill, but rather, yes, I'll do this, no, I won't, and living with consistency. But for Christians like us who have been waiting for 2,000 years for Christ's return, waiting with total integrity, I think, has a slightly different implication. Uh, absolutely, we, like the early Christians, should not overpromise or overcommit ourselves to things that we cannot fulfill. Our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. 
But I think rather that our greater temptation is not to overcommit uh, ourselves to service of people, but because we have been accustomed to waiting for Christ to so long, we are tempted to trust too much in the ability of human institutions to do what only Christ can do. In this way, we're not overcommitting ourselves in the service of others, but we are overcommitting our hope and expectancy in human institutions and undercommitting our hope and expectancy in Christ. It seems quite easy for us to trust in Jesus for our salvation, but not to trust Jesus to deal with the political situation of our nation. We are relying upon our elected officials to deal with that. But my, but my spiritual life, my salvation stuff, Jesus can deal with that. But politics is left for the politicians. You see, when we commit to Christ, when we say yes to Christ as Savior and Lord, we're not committing only our spiritual lives to Him, but we're committing also our moral lives to Him. We're committing our families to Him. We're committing our finances to Christ. We commit our vocational tracks, our education. We commit our very thoughts to Him as Lord, as King. Friend, if your yes to Christ as Lord is only an invitation to Jesus to be a part of your vocabulary on Sundays, while you trust in the government to bring peace on earth, dear friend, you are not a Christian. If your yes to Christ as Lord is only an invitation for Jesus to be part of your vocabulary on Sunday while you wait for other people to deal with the problems in the world, while you hope in the efforts of man to deal with the issues of of our culture right now, you are not properly a Christian because you have not submitted your hope and your trust in all things to Jesus. If you have said yes to Jesus because someone has promised you, even a pastor has promised you financial peace and prosperity because you say yes to Jesus, then your yes comes with strings attached and you are not really a Christian. When we say yes to Jesus, we say yes with every part of our lives, good or bad, in sickness or in health, till death do us part. Do those vows sound similar? When we say yes to Jesus, our yes means, must mean yes in all areas of our life. Dear friends, say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior, Savior over all your life today. Not merely your vocabulary on Sunday. Not merely your Sunday morning practices. Let Him be Lord not, not merely over one day a week, but seven And let him, invite him, ask him, submit to him as Lord over every part of your life, not just the ones that are easy to give to him. Trust him with the things that you know are certain and trust him with the things that are certainly uncertain. Learn to give all of your life with a a bold yes to Christ as Lord. That is the only Christian that is truly so. Let the profession that Jesus is Lord, that he is King, Let let your yes to Jesus have full integrity in you today as you surrender all of your life to Him. And this is not just a word for the person who has not trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior yet. This is a call to all Christians, to every one of us who struggles to give with with full integrity every part of our heart and lives to Jesus. We all struggle with this. We all have things that that we have placed our hope in, outcomes that we are looking forward to. We've placed our hope in them apart from Christ and in our own efforts or in the efforts of somebody else to do for us. Christian, we need to repent 
of not having integrity when it comes to saying yes to Jesus. And we need to say yes to him afresh. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, it is absolutely critical that as followers of the one true God who never speaks falsely and of his son who is the way, the truth, and the life, that we wait for Christ's return with total integrity. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. And may Christ rule as Lord in every corner of your heart and in every movement of your life. Faith waits with perseverance. Brothers and sisters, be patient. Until Christ returns, brothers and sisters, be peaceable. Until Christ comes to call a church to himself, brothers and sisters, endure with perseverance. And above all, brothers and sisters, as we wait for Jesus to return, the way, the truth, the life, to see him face to face, live with total integrity. Will you pray with me?